listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Today we have a special guest that I was lucky enough to meet and see present at the Best Ever Conference a couple months ago in Keystone. I was really impressed with his presentation and super excited that he agreed to join us on the show. So please welcome Neil Bauer. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the rent roll, Sterling. I'm legit now. I'm on the rent roll. <laughs> so, Neil, normally I, I kind of introduce people by a title. They're the president of this or, you know, the CEO of this. But you've got so many different irons in the fire, so many different things. I didn't even know where to start. So can you give our listeners a little rundown of what your accomplishments are and kind of what you're doing today in the real estate investing space? Accomplishments? No, but I can give you a rundown. So I'm president and CEO of Capitus and Multifamily University. I'm a data-driven tech geek, had a successful technology career and got into real estate by accident and now really enjoy commercial real estate. I you know, have a $250 million portfolio that's growing all the time. I do both new construction and value-add multifamily, student housing and public storage. Most of all, I like solving puzzles about data. I like solving puzzles about analytics that lead my investors to profit. So to me, numbers are not interesting, but reading the tea leaves to generate profit is endlessly interesting. So almost everything I talk about on the internet, on the 100 plus podcasts that I've been on is about reading the tea leaves in some fashion or the other. Awesome. So let's go back to the beginning. You said you were a data scientist. How did you make the transition from data scientist to real estate investor? Well, I wouldn't say I was a data scientist. I'd say I was an amateur data scientist. So I was running a company. It was a fairly large company, 400 employees. I was chief operations officer. And in 2003, we ended up with a lot of cash. We decided not to be tenants anymore. We decided to be our own landlords. So my CEO asked me for my help to build a custom campus for our company. And I was like, Paul, but I don't even know how to build a single family home. I mean, I, I know nothing about this. I didn't even have a single family rental at that point in time, right? So I'm like, I know nothing about this. He's like, Neil, you know, you're pretty good at figuring stuff out. Don't worry, I'm here, I'll help you. you know, he was more advanced than me. And so we went through this process of taking a, a building, a campus from scratch, right? So it wasn't like rehabbing anything, right? We were building it from scratch. And so, and we only had nine months and four days to do it. So we'd run the company from eight to six and then basically build the campus from 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. and then provide the drawings and the architectural stuff over to our general contractors so they could work on this stuff for the next day and the next week. So it was insanely hectic, but I learned amazing things. The first thing that I learned is that the value that you create when you do these kinds of things is absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like it in technology where I was working, right? It was a tech company but we were creating astonishing value and we were creating astonishing tax benefits for ourselves. And that got me hooked. Awesome. Wow. That's uh, that's crazy. You kind of got thrown into that. <laughs> and <laughs> so from there, did you kind of your light bulb went off? You decided that's what you wanted to do going forward. What did you? Yeah, but it was a full-time job, right? So, so the first thing we did was we built a second campus. We ended up building six of them, by the way, over, over eight years. And then I, you know, I should have gone straight into commercial because I had the skills, but I didn't. I still have my full-time job and I didn't give that up until 2013 when our company was sold. So to me, I said, what can I do with my 12-hour day technology job? And the answer was single-family rental. So I, I used data science to find the city in America where prices had dropped the most. So I mined the Zillow website with the aid of a Ukrainian hacker 
looked at 3,000 cities in the U.S., figured out which ones had dropped the most from 2005 to the end of 2008. Turned out Madeira, California had dropped 70 plus percent. And so I went to Madeira, California at about 10 single family homes because that's the most that you can buy, right? You can get only 10 loans for single family. Then of course, the big question was, you know, what do I do next now that I have 10 single family loans? And the answer was multifamily. So, but anyway, that's what I did. I, I went to Madeira, I bought 10 of these homes. My family thought that I was completely insane because they, they said, why would anybody be selling these homes at $90,000 if they were worth anything? I think that they're worth nothing. And I was like, no, real estate is always worth something. Real estate never goes to zero. There's no evidence of doing that. Look at the data. And my family's like, you're an idiot. And then I go out and buy 10 of these. And then my family six months is like, can we buy some of these? <laughs> that's, that's typically how that works. <laughs> On that same timeline as well. I've, I've seen it myself. So do you still buy in California or do you avoid? I avoid California. I love California. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'll never live anywhere else. I think it's an amazing, amazing state. But today I don't buy for myself. Today I buy for my investors, right? I'm invested, co-invested with them, but I'm primarily the money is theirs. All of these conversations, plus in the future, you know, I, I went to Chicago, I bought 10 triplexes, I've, I've done, you know, 14 units. I've done lots of, lots of projects that were primarily for me and for the, the tech money that I was bringing in. But once you start working with investors, you have to gravitate to whatever makes the most amount of sense, whatever is the most amount of cash flow and whatever is the least amount of risk. And California has always been about appreciation, about home runs. California, you don't get singles and doubles in California. You're either going to hit a home run or you're going to strike out. And that is not something that somebody with a data science background, with an analytics background likes. So for me, it's always been about, no, I, I don't mind hitting singles and doubles. And maybe there'll be some home runs in there somewhere. But what I don't want is to strike out. And so I stayed away from California. I've never invested in California in my syndication career, which so far I think we've had 20 projects. So they've all been primarily in the Southeast and the Southwest, including uh, Nevada and Utah simply because there's more cash flow and simply because there's more population growth. Now, California also has had tremendous population growth, but California has never had any cash. Have you had any issues with the tenant-friendly laws in California with your personal portfolio? Not so much. And then the big answer is California has a better quality of tenant than some of the other areas that I'm involved in. And so even though it's a tenant-friendly state, I haven't had a lot of trouble. Having said that, my wife is the property manager for my 13 tenants in California, and she does a phenomenal job. She's very experienced. And so our properties have been at somewhere between 97 and 98% occupancy for the last 10 years. And we received all of our rents for this month, which of course was a huge awesome. win. Yeah, absolutely. I am out of 20... Six. I've collected twenty-two and a half, and I'm I'm happy with that's that. That's pretty good. That no, that's a, that's a great number today. I have to tell you, Sterling. I mean, my experience is a little bit unusual in that my tenants are long-term, and a lot of them are white-collar. They're not blue-collar, so they it's not like they were working in restaurants or making beds in hotels, right? So sure. they, either they haven't been laid off or their companies are still paying them salaries. So there's a difference there. But in my mind, anybody that for the month of April could like you know collects twenty-two and a half rents out of twenty-six needs to give themselves a pat on the back and say, woof, could have been a lot worse. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about that transition from your single family and your personal <clears throat> investment to syndicating large, large multifamilies? Kind of why yeah. you went that direction, what that looked like on a, on a practical level? 
Same thing as before. It was an accident. So, <laughs> I, so what I started doing was uh, after I mined that Zillow website, I started getting confident that, hey, I, I knew some stuff that other people didn't. Right? And I, I bought all these homes and I'm making all this cash flow. There's some value to this sort of data mining sort of thing. So what I did was I started to write down a set of metrics that made sense to me. Right, And this is the very early rendition of what has come to become this location magic course that tens of thousands of people take around the US that I've written. But it was the very beginning of it. So I, I was still forming these ideas, this concept that there's got to be a data-driven way of doing real estate investing. And so I looked around and I said, you know, how can I get an audience for this? And again, I'm still running my technology company, but this technology company has large classrooms in a huge campus that I built. And so I'm like, can I start a meetup group in one of these classrooms? I mean, would anybody show up here if I start a meetup group in a classroom? It turns out classrooms are actually ideal places for meetup groups because you don't just have a chair. You have a place to sit down and write and you have projectors and you have audio and you have all these things. And, and so with the help of other people, I started, became a co-organizer of a meetup group. And I think it was 2011, 2010, 2011. And then initially, you know, the meetup group would bring in all these single family and multifamily and flip guys and, and you know, we would do stuff with them. And then I said, you know, I'm going to present. I'm going to start presenting myself because I, I think I have some good content. I have some good ideas. I'm a landlord of all these units. And I started to present. And what was interesting was people liked my presentations more. And the biggest reason for that was not because I was a good presenter. They liked it more because I have nothing to pitch, right? Because I would go and do this presentation. And at the end, they would be like, okay, so what's the pitch? What are you selling, right? It wasn't clear. It's like, I'm not selling anything. I'm a technology guy. You're standing inside my technology business right now. You're sitting inside my technology business. And I'm just telling you what I'm experiencing, right? And they're like, so what are you, why are you doing it? And it's like, because I like it. <laughs> and people were taken aback by that. So you come here and you make these elaborate presentations just because you like it. There's no business model. And I said, no, there's nothing here. So eventually there was this guy, you know, he, he ended up being my partner in the future. And my, my mentor, he came back and said, you know, you should really be looking at doing this as a business. So I thought about it and I started collecting people's information, their business cards, getting them to sign in. And the meetup just kept blowing up. I mean, I thought that 10 people would show up to listen to me and it was very common for 100 people to show up, right? Uh -huh. So it became very quickly the largest multifamily meetup in the US. And I kind of became a sort of a quasi mini celebrity in that, in that <laughs> little data analytics space. And then people started calling me for podcasts and then they started calling me for webinars. Then they started calling me to present at conferences. And so things have sort of snowballed pretty much in an accidental fashion. And I just, all, all I did was I kept collecting this information of people. And then when I was ready to, you know, my company, we, we had a beautiful technology exit, made lots of money. And when I was ready to move into the syndication world, I already had a database and an audience. I had proven credibility based on all these data-driven analytics that I was providing to people for years and years in all these sorts of presentations. So it sort of was a very natural and smooth transition even though it, none of it was planned. It was, you know, there was no planning in it at all. It was just like, okay, let's just do stuff and see what happens. Awesome. Wow. That's quite a story. So can you tell our listeners how you, can you elaborate a little bit more on what did you call it? The location, location magic plan? Yeah. So it's, it's developed over 10 years or so. And location magic is a set of metrics. It's a philosophy, but it's also a working system. So think of it as a very simple set of instructions to figure out the best cities, 
and the best neighborhoods in the U.S. for real estate investment. And just so you know, there's really no impact of coronavirus to the methodology, right? I might move the actual numbers, but the methodology remains the same. Nothing's changed pre and post-corona in terms of figuring out the best cities and best neighborhoods to invest in. The only advantage you have now in the post-corona world is you're likely to see lower prices. You're likely to see higher cash flow than I was two months ago. Right. So, so obviously it's a, it's a huge advantage to be using the system today compared to two or three months ago. So set a metrics. So it's five metrics at a city level, which allows you to compare a city with every other city in the U.S. Big city, small city, doesn't matter. And then five city metrics at a neighborhood level, which allow you to compare this neighborhood with other neighborhoods and tell if it's a good neighborhood for investment. Location magic doesn't care about the property. We are assuming that you're going to do your due diligence on the property. You're going to make sure the foundation isn't broken or the roof isn't leaking. You're going to do that. And most people are actually very comfortable doing that. What it does is it says, okay, as long as you're going to do your due diligence on the property and the tenants, why don't you improve your chances massively by investing in places that are already the best in America to invest in, right? And do it in an objective fashion, not subjective. Do it in a fashion that truly makes sense. So those are the metrics that I came up with. The Location Magic course is taught on the Multifamily U website. So if you go to multifamilyu, the letter u.com, and click on the Learn button, then click on Location Magic, you can take it. It's a three-hour course. It's video-driven. And the whole course is me, so you can see me, but you can also see my screen. So you actually you see a smaller version of me on the right talking about the course itself, and then you can see my screen. So I'm kind of walking you through all of the metrics, and I'm giving you a toolkit, an Excel spreadsheet, and a PowerPoint deck. The deck has 10 slides for, for the 10 metrics, and then the Excel spreadsheet simply allows you to plug in two numbers or one number for every metric, and you get an immediate thumbs up or a thumbs down right? So it's, it's a very powerful system. It's completely free. There's no, you know, you can buy an extended version of this. You can, you can pay 29 bucks a month and buy a new version. There's nothing like that. It's completely free. You can take it and use it however you wish. You can also modify it. So, you know, you've heard the term open source. It's, mm -hmm. it's open source. There's, there's no pitch to it. Absolutely. And, and I have been using it since we met and you gave it to me. So now every time something comes up on the market, I'm interested in, 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 an, in an area that I'm not familiar with. The first thing I do is I go and run it through your system. <laughs> so. good. That's good. And, and one of the key things to mention is that even before coronavirus, many of my own properties don't meet all 10 metrics. The goal was never to say, I will only invest in properties that meet those 10 metrics. No, the goal was to get as close as possible given the marketplace. Now, six months from now, I'm sure you'll find properties that will match all 10 of these metrics and are still cash flowing because of the pain that we are going to see in the market in Q3 and Q4. But in, in February or, or Jan, when I'm looking at properties, if I can get four out of five on the city level and I can get four out of five on the neighborhood level, I still consider that to be pretty damn good. What was important though is because in a, in a year I was looking at 100 properties, now I had a way of measuring them against each other and saying, ah, oh, this one's better than that one, right? And that's the beauty of the system. It allows you to create a benchmark where you can say no very quickly. I mean, the biggest benefit of the system over the last six years is I have saved thousands of hours of analysis for properties that are total shit properties where I basically just plug them into the Excel spreadsheet and like, no way in hell would I even underwrite this property. Goodbye, right? Save myself insane amounts of time. 
And then I had some properties where you'd plug it in and the number was like, holy shit, this, this property looks good. I'm, instead of underwriting these three others that I was underwriting yesterday, I'm going to drop all of those or move them back. I'm going to go underwrite this sucker first because it's going to disappear, right? So it allowed me to optimize the incoming flow of properties that I was getting, right? It also allowed me to do something that was very important. New construction is riskier than value-add properties, right? So you're taking a higher level of risk. But what if you were already building in some of the best markets in America and then some of the best neighborhoods inside of those markets? Now you've reduced your risk. It's still more risky than value add, but you've reduced your risk and you have outsized profits because some of these markets, the rent growth has been 2x or even 3x that of the U.S. So you, you have the, you're giving yourself the, uh, the possibility of a home run, even though you're aiming for a single or a double. Can you rattle off the metrics for us real quick? Sure. So... Five major metrics. The first one, which makes all the sense in the world, is population growth. So we're looking for a certain amount of population growth. And I encourage you to go to multifamilyu.com and sign up for the course so you get more. But, but here's the belief. So from 2000 to 2017, you're looking for a certain amount of population growth, which right now is about 21.5%. So I might be off by a quarter point on that. So that's how much population growth there should be between 2000 and 2017. And the Excel spreadsheet and the actual course that's on my website, multifamilyu.com, tells you where to go get the two numbers, the 2000 number and the 2017 number. It also explains why I'm not using a 2020 number. Why am I using a number that's two or three years old? So it explains that. So you want that population growth level to be there because population growth is what drives competition for real estate. So an area like Detroit, which has had declining population, is going to have a lower demand. It's still going to have demand, but it's going to have lower demand for real estate than an area like Phoenix, which has 3x or 4x the population growth of the U.S., right? So bottom line is you have to really understand that population growth is, is a key driver. The next driver, which piggybacks on population growth, is income growth. If people's incomes are not growing, how can they give you more rent? And if they can't give you more rent, how can you raise rents as a landlord and get your home run? Remember, the best property in the world is not one where you can make 5% rent growth this year. The best property in the world is where you can make 3% rent growth every year for the next 10 years. Because 3% compounded is huge. You're going to be making 45% more in rents 10 years from now. Every single property I have in Madeira is like that. All of them, right? Right, and, and all of them have completed 10 years. So can you imagine how trivial my mortgage is compared to my cash flow, sure. right? So what you're looking for are areas where you don't just get one year of outstanding income growth, you get 10 years. And the way to do that is to look at incomes. If incomes are growing at 31, 32% over that same 2000 to 2017 timeframe, this market has a lot of jobs and a lot of income. And as people are making more money, they can afford to give you more money, both as landlords, and they can also afford to, to buy properties for more, which, you know, if the price of home prices goes up, that allows landlords to charge more. So the third metric is home price growth. Even though we're talking about rentals and a lot of us that are listening to this podcast are more interested in multifamily than single family, it doesn't really matter. If you're in a market where home prices are growing at 40 or a little more than 40% in that, in that time frame, that 2000 to 2017. Once again, the kit has all the details in the world and you can get it at multifamilyu.com. So when you look at that 40% growth in home prices, it tells you that I can certainly get 2.5% in rent growth every year, 
okay? Because that 40% is over about 17 years. So if you divide 40, 40 by 17, you end up with about two and a half percent. So you're like, this market has a history of being able to grow incomes by two and a half percent, which means I can at least grow my rent by two and a half percent into the future, looking at a five year or 10 year time frame. That's critical because what you're doing is you're gaming the system. This is legal cheating, right? What you're doing is you're cherry picking only those places that have all of the things that make it easy for you to plop in a seed and grow a tree, right? I mean, you think about it, actually knowing where the fertile soil is makes life much simpler right? You go out and plop a seed on concrete, even if you water it for five years, there's going to be no tree. But if you put it in the right kind of fertile soil at the right time, all you have to do is give it water. It grows by itself. So I tell people that I'm the laziest guy out there and they don't understand that. And I tell them, I just game the system in my favor to begin with, right? I game everything in my favor to begin with. Right. And, and it's remarkable how certain properties are. Let me give you an example. I use this system to buy a property in Dalton, Georgia. Nobody's ever heard of Dalton, Georgia. It's 30,000 people. It's near no big metro. Like the nearest metro is 40 miles away. It's, it's at Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee. But this property, for the 11 months before this month, the coronavirus month, for 11 straight months had $0 in delinquency. It has 150 tenants and had $0 in delinquency for over 11 months, right? Have you ever heard of a property that's 150 <laughs> units and has, has zero delinquency in one month? This had 11 months. Now this, this month it has $6,000 of delinquency, which is still a ridiculously trivial number on a property that's usually 97, 98% occupied, right? So it, it's no big deal. So we look at that. Why does that work? I mean, do, do you think I'm putting a lot of work at this property? Do you think I'm really busting my butt there? No, the property had astonishing demographics. There was clearly massive demand. There was almost no supply at all because rents were still too low for new construction to happen. So in about two or three years, the rents will get to the point where new construction will happen and then there'll be more competition and my, my occupancy will come down to a more reasonable level. But right now the property just stays at 98%, right? So what I'm talking about is not is replacing busting your ass for five years with busting your ass for an hour early on and just cherry picking the right places in America to invest. So number three was home price growth. Number four is crime. So it's on city-data.com. There's a table there. You plug in your city and you scroll down and there's this table and it only has one row that's blue. So you go look at that row and the number on the bottom right Make sure it's lower than 500. That's the city data crime index. Make sure you're under 500. Also, it would be nice if the trend line showed that the trend from left to right showed that the city's crime is decreasing. So if you want to game it a little bit more, go into cities where crime is decreasing and it's under 500. Bottom right of the blue row on the table that's on city-data.com for whatever city you're looking for. That's crime. And, and keep in mind, crime going down, prices go up. That is very consistent. We've always seen it happen. The fifth one is the most powerful. And if there is one of these five elements that you want to pay more attention to than, than the other four, it is jobs, right? So, which obviously is very relevant because we are having this conversation on April 9th <laughs> when 10 million Americans have just lost, lost their jobs, right? So it's, it's stunning. I mean, that kind of job loss has never happened in history in the US in, in such a short amount of time. So jobs and jobs 
unlike all of my other metrics, the job metric is a real-time metric. I only look at the last 12 months, and now you know why, right? Lots of people have questioned that part of my methodology. They've said, you look at 10 years for this and 10 years for that and 15 years for this, but for the jobs, you only look at the last 12 months. Why is that, Neil? Because I said jobs are a mental thing. People who have jobs buy stuff. People who don't immediately stop buying stuff. And here we have tenants who've lost their jobs 15 days ago, refusing to pay rent. 15 days ago, right? They probably still have money in their bank, but jobs are really tied to the way we think, right? So the job data is on a website. This URL is too long for me to give it to you. So there's a website called departmentofnumbers.com, which has job data by, by Metro. And as long as your Metro in the last 12 months has been growing at 2%, that's a good Metro to go after. 3%, you're going to do really well. 4%, you're going to be dancing you know, in the street with champagne bottles. And there's very few metros in the U.S. that tend to be above 4% consistently. St. George, Utah is above 4% consistently. So there's a few metros there. So don't, don't necessarily look for the 4% metros. That's not a good idea. People like me that are professionals can do that because we can build connections over time and we can be very patient. But look for places there that are two, two and a half, three percent. If it's a major metro, you can look at two percent. If it's a smaller metro, look at three percent. And once again, you're gaming the system because when you get three percent job growth, you can't magically produce three percent more homes in that place. I mean, you, you don't get that kind of new construction in most markets in the U.S. So guess what happens? There's more people with jobs and money than there are homes. That creates competition for single family homes, which creates competitions for rentals which creates an environment where you can raise rents much, much, much faster. There have been places in the U.S. in the last four, four years where we had this kind of demand supply issue and <laughs> raised rents in places by 6 7% a year, which is a stunning number. A lot of people listening to this podcast don't realize what's the big deal about 6% rent growth. Don't equate that with 6% home price growth because when we do syndications, we have to raise rents by about 2.5% each year, which is you know about 12.5% overall over five years, plus the bump that we get from rehabbing units to double investor money. So what if you could get 6%, your goal is about 12.5% in five years. What if I could get 6 per 6 of that halfway in one year? Imagine how quickly I could sell that building, how quickly I could double investor money. 6% is a phenomenal deal in my world, and we've had that access to that. Will we have access to it in the rest of 2020? Not a chance, right? Zero chance that that'll happen. But I think that there's a possibility it'll come back in 2021. So that kind of leads me into my next question. And I know you've put out, God knows how many hours of content on the subject, <laughs> but can you just share a general overview of your predictions of the economy, how it's being affected by coronavirus and what you expect for the near and distant future? Yeah, near future, huge pain. You know, distant future, <laughs> pain. So th this is bigger than most people think. We have essentially done a fairly orderly shutdown of the world economy, not just the U.S. economy, but the world economy. This matters a lot because the U.S. is the most interconnected economy in the world, right? So if there's a recession in the Philippines, we're going to suffer. If there's a recession in Malaysia, we're going to suffer because we're selling stuff to everybody and we're taking stuff from everybody. We're a major tourism magnet to people from all over the world. We're a major education magnet. So when other economies don't do well, we don't do well. Now, not even in 2008 did every single economy in the world go into recession in the same month. India and China 
never went into recession in 2008. And many Asian tigers didn't either. And here, every single economy on the planet that matters, and I'm not counting all the little ones, but all the big ones, have all gone into recession in March, right? So the impact is absolutely devastating and is not clear yet. I have no freaking idea why the stock market has been going up for four straight days. You know, maybe it's just because they got adjusted to their new coronavirus world. I believe the stock market will fall over the next few months to a much lower number than you see it uh, at today. The pain's there, the pain's very sharp. You're gonna feel it in Q2. Now on the good side, I believe that the world will do much better fighting the coronavirus than most people give us credit for. And in the last three or four days, and I've been talking about this since March, saying, no, these, num these death numbers are, are going to be much lower. And I've been validated. In the last two days, they've now started saying, well, it's not 250,000 deaths. It's not 100,000. It's not 80,000. Today, they're saying it's 60,000, which right. for a pandemic like this is a very low number. You know, may seem horribly high, but it's very low. So I think we beat this thing. I think that we also do well on the dance where, you know, we, we reopen the economy and then it, it flares up and then we shut down some city and then that city comes back. So there's going to be this dance, this back and forth, two steps forward, one step back that we're going to do until we get to a vaccine. But I think we're going to do that well. I'm already seeing evidence that the U.S.'s entrepreneurial machine is spinning up to do some of these things better than other countries will. And we don't even come out of quarantine for another 30 days. So we've got 30 days to get, it, get our shit together. But the problem is, so we do that part well, and Wall Street is already assuming that. The problem is we shut down the world economy, which is essentially a $100 trillion economy for about two months. And so we lost 50% of two months, so, so essentially one month, one month of ten trillion of a hundred trillion dollar economy is roughly eight trillion dollars of damage. That is a massive amount of damage. That's actually more than we caused in two thousand and eight, in just two months, because the damage is so strong. I expect prices of everything to fall in Q three and Q two. Nothing's going to fall because the economy is really frozen. Right? You can't have things falling when you can't even do due diligence. But those of you out there listening to this podcast from, from Sterling are like, is this a great time for me to get in? I would kill for a time like this. Are you kidding me? Everything's going to be on sale in Q3. Multifamily, on sale. Single family, on sale. Hotels, fire sale. Retail, fire sale. So you're going to see senior housing on fire sale. Are you going to leave your grandma right now in a nursing home with 100 other people with the, this enemy roaming the hallways? Are you kidding me? People are moving them to their homes. A lot of these senior housing homes are empty. Fire sale, right? So there's blood in the water. That's where the opportunity really is. To me, I think Q3 and Q4 of this year are great opportunities on the commercial side. And you'll also see some stress on the single family side. Though So far, the single family market is doing really well. It's liquid. Loans are cheap. The multifamily market and, and the commercial market has pretty much frozen up. I mean, there's, there's very little activity going on. And when I say very little, I don't mean like there's only 10%. There's loans are getting done, properties are getting purchased, but a lot of those were 1031. A lot of those were strong properties with you know, strong balance sheets. You can still buy those for the appropriate price. But a ton of our deals are getting deferred. And the reason for that is nobody knows how to value multifamily because look at our rental rolls for mm -hmm. April. They look horrible, right? So how do you value the multifamily? Do you value it based on this or do you skip it? Nobody has any kind of consensus there. And because there's not going to be any consensus for the next six months, 
there's going to be deals in the marketplace at lower prices. So yes, you'll see multifamily at lower prices, especially large multifamily. Small multifamily, maybe not so much, but large multifamily, you're going to see 5, 10, 15% price reductions in Q3 and maybe even in Q4. In my mind, we'd be stupid not to buy them because I think by, by Q1 of next year or Q2 of next year, the economy will look normal. There's still that, men, that much demand for these rental properties, right? So the demand hasn't really decreased. It's just temporarily the price will decrease because nobody's going to know how to value them. Got it? So it's a huge opportunity. It's a massive opportunity. And I think it's just really Q3 and Q4 opportunities. That, that's my, my thinking. So what's next for you? What are you going to be pursuing over the next year and forward? I'm doing new construction because for the first time in history, for a very short amount of time, new construction is less risky than value add. And you might say, how is that possible? Right? <laughs> um, you know, the short answer is new construction loans are looking at rent rolls 18 months from now. And they, it's easy to convince them that everything will be stabilized value-add rent rolls have to include the horrific month of April and then equally horrific month of May and possibly even you know a month of June, that might be bad. So if, if I'm buying value-add in Q3 or Q4, I'm only willing to buy them at that lower price. So I'm going to be buying most likely in Q4 lots of value-adds. I'm going to wait for the price to go down. In the meantime, right now, every new construction project that is not a huge project. The huge pro new construction projects are, are going to get hurt. Every new construction project that's a small one, little one, is going ahead because they are simply assuming, those underwriters are assuming that this two-month blip, the April and May and maybe June bad numbers, are just a blip. They're going to assume the same numbers that we had back in February when underwriting this property. So new construction's working. Most states have already deemed new construction to be essential activity. My property in Houston's not affected. My property in St. George is not affected. New construction is going on. In fact, what's amazing is in St. George, until last month, we had trouble getting two crews per framing. Today, we have three and we can get a fourth if we want. Why? Because some states, especially blue states, have not considered construction to be essential. So all those people are laid off. And guess what? They, they get in their truck and they drive for six hours. They go into a red state where construction is essential and they find work. So now it's really easy to find crews and move on with your construction. And because the city is so friendly and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you're fine. You're in a special act activity. Make sure your workers are wearing gloves and masks, which, as you know, construction workers wear gloves and masks anyway, right? Mm. So, so I think that right now I'm doing new construction. In Q4, I'm going to be buying value adds, but I want to wait for them to get cheap. Awesome. So what advice do you have for any of our listeners that are either, you know, on the fence about starting to invest in real estate or even maybe on the fence about making that transition from single family over to the multifamily space? Well, let's see. First advice. I only gave you half of the metrics. So the neighborhood metrics, <laughs> make sure you go to multifamilyu.com, click on learn, watch the entire three hour location magic course. You need that to fortify yourself. Second, if you don't get into real estate in Q3, Q4 of this year, you're never going to get in. That simply means that you're not cut out for it, right? Because you have this opportunity, there's blood in the water, but the fundamental US economy is still strong. When we look at 
the money that corporations had in the bank, super strong. How well are banks liquid? Super strong, right? So many, many aspects of the US and the world economy were very, very strong in February. In fact, February looked phenomenal. I was like, this looks perfect. Something bad is going to happen. You know, <laughs> never said that. But to me, the underlying strength of the economy means, yes, we're going to have a terrible year. But if you're investing in real estate for the next six months, you are better off doing stock trading. Real estate investments are meant to be for the three, the five, the seven year term. And in the second half of this year, you'll get plenty of buying opportunities. The value of real estate though is very visible. Let me give you one simple example. And if this doesn't change your mind, my friends, nothing will. Right now, on average, apartment complexes are receiving 12% less rent than they were last month. But strip malls are receiving 60% less. Hotels are receiving 70%, hotel lenders are receiving 70% less rent from their tenants, which are the, the people running the hotels. Isn't it obvious that multifamily and real estate is a privileged asset class? The biggest reason why we got there is everybody's helping us. The government is pitching in, the Fed is pitching in, interest rates have been dropped, and trillions of dollars of money has been given to tenants who are now handing it back to us. None of that trillions of dollars is going to go into hotels or retail or office. Those people are effectively screwed, pardon my French. But we are not. So we're a privileged asset class. It's very visible to everybody that Republican or Democrat, they will shower money on you when push comes to shove. If this is not enough to get you into rental real estate, nothing ever will. So don't freeze. Your opportunity is going to come. Wait until Q3. Don't buy anything right now, please, because nobody knows how to value it. Your opportunity will come. Time to jump in. Doesn't matter if it's single family or multifamily. There's going to be deals on, on both sides available in Q3, Q4. Awesome. So real quick, just to finish things up with our radio round, what is your favorite book? My favorite book is The Miracle Morning. And the reason it is Hello. my favorite is it allows me to read a book every six days. So if you don't know what Miracle Morning is, look it up. It's the greatest book of all because it enables you to read other books. Awesome. I love it. What's your favorite quote? Data beats gut feel by a million miles. I have a funny quote that I wanted to give you that, that I invented. And that is that the Bible got it wrong by one letter. It is not the meek that shall inherit the earth. It's the geek. geek. <laughs> so what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Grow tomatoes. Actually, one of my most popular videos is about use of data science to grow more and bigger tomatoes. I have that on my Facebook and it's a very interesting video. I, I talk about different sun levels, LED lighting and different soil heights and things like that and different soils. And then at the end, I give, you know, for those people that are still watching at the end, I show you how I raise a million dollars a year in equity with those tomatoes. Awesome. I saw that on your Facebook feed and I saved it to watch it later. I know you've mentioned it a few times, your website, but can you tell our listeners where they can find you, find out more about you? Yeah. The best way to learn more about us is multifamily U. That's multifamily followed by the letter U.com. Right now, we've never been this active. We hold a webinar or uh, one webinar in a town hall on the impact of COVID every week. Every one of them has been at our maximum limit of our Zoom license. So we don't even know how many people are showing up to watch because we can only have 500 of them. 
We actually have one today. And we do a different town hall each week with a different topic. So sometimes it's acquisition, sometimes it's debt, sometimes it's the general market, sometimes it's other asset classes like store, public storage. And so we do that every week so that people stay in the game mentally. This is not the time to tune out. Awesome. Neil, thank you so much for joining. Every time I talk to you, I feel like I learned something and I can't wait to get this out to our listeners because I know they're just going to eat it up. Sounds good. Sounds good, my friend. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.